Again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, April 8th, 2013. This is podcast number 297, and my name is Ben Stone. Okay, and now the announcements, uh, as always. Porkfest 10, June 17th through 23rd, 2013, at the Rogers Campground, Lancaster, New Hampshire. If you can, folks, you got to make it. I'm going to be speaking Monday at 11 a.m. and Friday at 12 noon. And my two topics are going to be Central Planning versus Spontaneous Order and Discovering and Defeating Status Thinking. Uh, now, I do have a correction to Friday's podcast. I put this on the, uh, on the website on Saturday, but in case you didn't notice that, I misspoke uh, last Friday. I inadvertently switched uh, my Austrians. I, got, uh, I meant to say Yuri Moltsev will be speaking at Porkfest 10, and I accidentally said Hans Hermann Hoppe will be there. I, I would love to see Hans Hermann Hoppe at Porkfest. To my knowledge, uh, he has no plans to be there, but that, w- that would be great if he was there. But uh, that was just a slip of my brain. Uh, it's actually Yuri Moltsev that's going to be there. Yuri is, what did, what did the guy say? Uh, yesterday on the Freedom Fiends, um, one of the chat people said Yuri was like a, 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 a blend of stand-up and learning. And that's really true. Yuri is, is a real hoot to listen to. I really like uh, listening to his stories. So anyway, so it'll be Yuri Maltzev that will be speaking at Porkfest 10 and not Hans uh, Hermann Hoppe. Anyway, uh, that said, I would still like to get an, an interview with Yuri. So anybody that can, that's going to be at Porkfest that can help me with that, you know, uh, let's try to herd Yuri into a spot where I can get a microphone in front of him. Okay, and now um, as I've been talking about the Seacoast um, Annual Freedom Expo, which is going to be in Exeter, New Hampshire at the Exeter Town Hall on Saturday, April 27th of this year, that's free. There's no admission cost. And they have announced that uh, they've been able to expand it and get a couple more hours in there and get some more uh, activity and stuff. So that's uh, that's getting bigger and bigger. And somebody might say, well, yeah, but that's a Republican thing. Well, yeah, it is. It actually is. So you might have to hold your nose and you might have to hold your tongue a bit. But you have to keep in mind that in New Hampshire, the line between anarchist, anarcho-capitalist, um, libertarian, you know, uh, uh, liberal, conservative, Republican, uh, Democrat, that's all getting fuzzy by the, uh, by the addition of the Free State Project up there. They're moving into all aspects of, uh, of the whole political realm in New Hampshire. So, uh, so if you get up there to the uh, Exeter Town Hall on the 27th, you're going to find some Republicans, but you're also going to find some people who, you know, almost anywhere in, else in the world wouldn't be defined as Republicans. So 
Anyway, uh, also, I want to give another uh, shout-out to the first annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest hosted by the Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition. That's going to be at Brighton uh, Recreationary in Brighton, um, Michigan. That will be August, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, August 17th, 18th, and 19th. So you need to register for that. And um, Okay, now another announcement. We're looking at putting together a Bad Quaker Top 40 podcasts. Uh, Michael, Michael Dean over at the Freedom Fiends and some of his uh, fiends are, are uh, looking at uh, putting together... Uh, they, they want me to come up with 40 of the top podcasts of badquaker.com, and we're going to put them all together and put them up on the, uh, on the torrents. You know, all the kids are talking about the torrents these days. And I was thinking, you know, this would be a really good opportunity to, like, to put together like a, uh, like a DVD with the 40 top um, Bad Quaker podcasts. So here's an opportunity for you. If you're a member on the forum, uh, I haven't started the thread yet, but I'll probably be putting up a thread today on the forum about the to- Bad Quaker Top 40. And so just get in there and list uh, what you'd like to see listed as in the Top 40, what podcasts you'd like to see from the uh, Bad Quaker Archive. And if you're not a member of the forum, um, you can drop an email, badquaker at badquaker.com, and just tell me the number. I need to know the number of the podcast. You know, it's each podcast starts off with a series of numbers. Like, for instance, today's podcast is listed as 03. 62PC297. Well, that means podcast 297. It's file number 0362 and podcast number 297. So all you have to do is say podcast 297 and that would be uh, that would be good enough. Or you can give the whole file name or you can put a link to it or whatever makes you feel good. Hey, I can't tell you what to do. I'm not the boss of you, right? Uh, now, the one thing, the one last thing that I wanted to mention, you know, we did a beg fest last Friday where I, I begged and uh, pleaded for, oh, think of us like, uh, like uh, what is it, public broadcasting and uh, send me money, that kind of thing. And I want to thank the people that responded to that. I really appreciate that. I'm going to send out some thank you emails today. Uh, but I really do appreciate um, the folks that stepped up and, and helped out with that. Okay, so now... Uh, Let's jump into this thing, shall we? I'm going to title this One View of Public Goods. But who would build the roads? Now, um, over on the BadQuaker.com forum, we are fortunate enough to have a visitor who has been engaging me back and forth. And we've been, I, I, I think, in a friendly basis. I don't think there's any disrespect meant. But uh, world-renowned economist David Friedman, a legendary anarchist David Friedman, has been kind enough to come on the Bad Quaker forum. And we've kind of been playing a little bit of badminton back and forth. And he's been kind enough to share his thoughts on some things. And one of his um, criticisms of my postings was he said uh, that my statements were, uh, and this is a quote, super, superficial and shows no evidence that I've thought about or even are aware of the public good problem. Well, but who would build the roads? I can understand why he would say that because that hadn't the public good problem, public goods problem hadn't been brought up in the discussion. But uh, and I got a little quippy with him. Quippy is that a word? I got a little quippy with him about it and kind of just shot back a quick answer and said, "Wow, there you go." But but who would build the roads? um, But in a sense, uh, you know where we're at in the liberty um, uh, mission today. 
well, think of it like this. Imagine yourself at a sports bar and you, uh, you, you know, you take some lunch time over with some guys from the office and you head over to a sports bar and you're sitting there and you're talking about the, uh, the upcoming NFL season. And so the first guy, let's say there's four of you, and the first guy says, uh, you know that Matt Ryan is going to really, he's going to shock this year. Matt Ryan is really going to shock this year. And the next guy kind of laughs, and he's like, Matt Ryan, come on. Russell Wilson is here, and this is his year. You watch Russell Wilson. And the other guy says, I don't know, you know, uh, this guy, the six foot seven inch Mike Glennon, uh, you know, that could change things if the draft goes in the right direction. And then the fourth guy goes, you know, the best quarterback I ever saw was Bobby Thompson. He led the Tigers uh, uh, to the greater Tri-County Pee Wee Football Championship back in 1963. Now, at that moment, all three of you stop and you look at this fourth guy and you realize that he's been arranging the French fries on his plate for the last few minutes from the longest to the shortest and by, uh, by texture. And he's dabbling upon each French fry its own individual droplet of ketchup. That's kind of what I felt like when uh, uh, when David Friedman brought up the the uh, public goods argument. It's like, you know, in the circles that uh, that we're moving in here. I mean, I realize that was a big thing some time back, but you know, who's going to build the roads? Come on! But who would build the roads? So, really, the key to knowing what you're talking about is to understand who you're talking to. And this is a, a knife that cuts in both directions, really. Uh, you know, it, it's really easy to look foolish. I mean, you know, my football uh, uh, example that are there that I was giving, in the right circles, the guy that I was making fun of, that would be a perfectly valid point that he was making, a ver- perfectly valid and interesting topic. But uh, to really... To really appear like you know what you're talking about, you have to understand who you're talking to. And so, like in the case with David Freeman on the Ford, on the forum there, I just kind of uh, deferred to previous podcasts I'd made and to the work of Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan is a brilliant economist that's down at uh, George Mason University. And, and in a sense, I feel like, you know, it's just not necessary to reinvent the wheel every time I go out to go for a drive. It's just I don't see the sense in it. So to a large extent, I'm, I'm slow about talking about something like the public goods problem because, I mean, you know, it's been done. It's been covered. Um, I mentioned Brian Kaplan. Uh, I'll put a link in today's show notes. Uh, Brian Kaplan covers this so well. He he talks about it in a way that covers, you know, there's like, I don't know how many strains of anarchism. Uh, there's probably as many strains of anarchism as there are hair on my head. But uh, but Brian does a really good job in um, in covering all the different aspects of the, basically of the frequently asked questions about anarchism. And that's the name of the, uh, of the article, frequently asked questions about anarchy. And I'll put a link, like I said, in today's show notes to it. Um, but in, uh, frequent anarchy, fre- frequently asked questions, number 15, which is, uh, how would anarchists handle the public goods problem? Brian says this, he says, modern neoclassical or mainstream economists, especially those associated with theoretical welfare economics, have several important arguments for the necessity or desirability of government. Out of these, the so-called public goods problem is surely the most frequently voiced. In fact, many academics consider it a rigorous justification for the existence and limits of the state. Anarcho-capitalists are often very familiar with this line of thought, 
and spend considerable time trying to refute it. Left anarchists are generally less interested, but it is useful to see how the left anarchist might respond. We will begin by explaining the concept of Pareto optimality, uh, forgive my pronunciation, uh, show how the Pareto criterion is used to justify state action, and then examine how anarchists might object to the underlying assumptions of these economic justifications for the state. After exploring the general critique, we will turn to the public to the problem of public goods and the closely related externalities issue. After showing how many economists oops, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. After showing how many economists believe that these problems necessitate government action, we will consider how left anarchists and anarcho capitalists might reply. And then he goes on to uh, as you go into uh, uh, question fifteen and question fifteen point A and fifteen point B uh, Brian really thoroughly covers it. Uh, and so, you know, I, I feel like, like I said a second ago, I just don't need to reinvent the wheel every time I go out and start the car. It's just, I don't see the, the necessity in it. But I do want to mention this Italian uh, person here, Velfredo Pareto. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right or wrong because I ain't got me much book learning. But anyway, the the... Pareto effect or a Pareto optimality, and this is the, de- the official definition of it from one source, is a concept in economics with applications in engineering. The term is named after Vilfredo Pareto, Pareto uh, 1848 to 1923. He was an Italian economist who used the concept in his studies of economic efficiency and income distribution. Pareto efficiency is a state of economic allocation of resources in which it is impossible to make anyone further better off without making at least one individual worse off. Given an, in, given an initial allocation of goods among a set of individuals, a change to a different allocation that makes at least one individual better off without making any other individual better, worse off is called a Pareto improvement. An allocation is defined as Pareto efficient or Pareto optimal when no further Pareto improvements can be made. And so I read that and I listen to that and I think about where is this thought coming from? What are the implications of this thought? And I say to myself, that's fascist hogwash. That's all that is. If you start with a false premise... Then you end with a conclusion that suits your pur- your purposes to begin with. That's all that really is. Uh, Vilfredo uh, uh, Pareto, Pareto was a fascist by his own definition. I mean, I'm not saying that to be derogatory. This is just a simple fact. In the time frame when when uh, Vilfredo lived, uh, it wasn't considered derogatory to say someone was a fascist. This is pre-Hitler, so people could talk truthfully without the distortions of, you know, government schools twisting words around in circles, although there was some of that then, just as now. But a fascist was uh, was not a, a derogatory phrase back in that time frame. Uh, he would have been b- very proud to call himself a fascist, as many people did back in that time frame. So, yes, he was a fascist. Um, the false premise that he's making here is that the market is a closed system with measurable resources and demands. But if that's true, if that really were true, then central planning might be able to work, although you'd still have the price problem that Mises talks about. But it's not true, and central planning just can't work. 
But even if this false premise is true, even if you accept that to start with, it assumes a social contract and rejects true property rights. In other words, this fascist hogwash is based on socialist hogwash. So Brian Kaplan, uh, in that article that I was talking about, Brian Kaplan does a really good job in explaining the various aspects of the argument and the different uh, anarchist counterarguments to this uh, to this argument. And again, this is in uh, Anarchist uh, Frequently Asked Questions number 15, 15A, and 15B. Be sure and follow the link at Bad Quaker in today's show notes to uh, to read what Brian has to say about that. Because his stuff is really good and it's well thought out. And, and even though, you know, I would disagree with a lot of things with Brian Kaplan, just like with, uh, uh, just w- like with David Friedman, there's a lot of stuff that I would disagree with both these gentlemen on. But we're all, you know, we're all moving in pretty much the same direction. Maybe not at the same speed and maybe, maybe I've got things he hasn't seen or he's got things I haven't seen or maybe I'm mistaken about something or maybe I'm, you know, I haven't read quite as much about something. But we're all pretty much going in the right direction. Um, so now the Pareto steps, um, the, the failures of thought, I, I broke them down into three steps. This is the first step is to reject property rights. The second step is to assume the social contract. And the third step is to assume a limited, what I call a, a limited pie when looking at the economy, to think of the economy as a, as a pie. And another way that I... Uh, uh, I think of it as there's this preference of envy over work, like someone would prefer something you've got rather than working for it themselves. And so when I when I when I look at the uh, Pareto, um, this this whole series of fallacies that that comes from his uh, uh, from his work, I see those three things. I see the rejection of property rights, the assumption of, so, of a social contract. And I see uh, the assumption of a limited uh, a pie, so to speak, of the economy. So I'm going to break right here. And when I get back from the, uh, from the break, I'm going to go into this, uh, these three steps towards failure of thought. And I'll, I'll break them down a little bit for you. So stick with me, and uh, I'll be right back. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Bad Quaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Want to contribute to Liberty but short on cash? You can help the Freedom Fiends without even spending a post-1964 dime. Download uTorrent and start seeding Fiends episodes and DVDs to help keep us drone-proof. There's a Torrent Club link at the top of FreedomFiends.com. There you'll find our Torrent RSS feed and instructions to grab past episodes and automatically download new ones, even while you're away from the computer. You'll also get special episodes of The Fiends and Anarchy Gumbo days or even weeks before regular podcast subscribers who aren't torrenting. Leave your computer on, seating the torrents while you're at work or asleep. The more people seating The Fiends, the more drone-proof we'll be when the boot comes down. But who would build the roads? 
BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to badquaker.com and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting badquaker.com. Thanks for sticking with me through the break. Now, I'm going to be talking about um, what I was calling the three steps toward uh, Pareto's failure of thought. Um, I meant to mention something earlier, uh, very at the very beginning, and I forgot about it. So this would probably be a really good time uh, to uh, to mention it before I really get wrapped up in talking more about Pareto. Um, you know, I started on a topic last Friday, and because I had you know spent the first half of the podcast begging, I didn't get to finish all of what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about Ronald Reagan. I want to talk about the CIA. I wanted to talk about the, uh, you know, the poppy harvest in Afghanistan. So if you're tuning in today on Monday, expecting to hear the second half of what I was talking about on Friday, um, I haven't abandoned it. I'll probably cover it tomorrow. Uh, but I, I really, this was in my brain, uh, especially after, you know, uh, talking about it on the, on the uh, forum and dealing with it there. And then I was on, uh, I was on Freedom Fiends live Sunday night last night with Michael Dean. And we kind of bumped into it a little bit, uh, on, on that, uh, podcast. And so, you know, you get something like that in your ear and it's kind of hard to dig it out unless you just finish it completely. So I, I will, if you, like I say, if you're turn, tuning in to hear about Ronald Reagan and the uh, Afghan problem and the poppies and the CIA and all that stuff, don't worry. Uh, it's one of my favorite topics. Uh, I'm going to try to get to it this week, probably tomorrow. If, uh, if not, um, it's definitely something I'm going to keep talking about because, uh, like I said, I really like to talk about that. It's a, it's a topic that I've got a lot of research into. I've got pages of, of uh, documentation that I'm digging through constantly. And every time I get a chance to talk about it, I just uh, I really like to talk about that. So, so uh, okay, so let's get back to uh, Pareto. So um, now his three steps. Step one is the right to property. He has, uh, whether he realized it or not, he has rejected the fundamentals of property rights um, before he ever came to the conclusions that he came to. So now, uh, property rights. Well, I would argue that f- that property rights are fundamental to human survival. You take, you know, uh, I, I like to bring things back to the the two basic trains of thought. What is man, is mankind on earth intentionally or through random processes. Now, I tend to, if, if I have an idea or a thought or a theory, I tend to bump it against these two things. Um, is man here for a purpose or is man here through random chance? And um, if, I can, if I can make my thought work out through both of those two processes, then I'm a lot more comfortable with it than if it bumps up against one and flows with the other one. So, um, so property is property fundamental to human survival. Well, then you know what is humans? What are humans really? 
other than a mem- member of the animal kingdom. So we, we look around at animals. And we look around at uh, specifically at the upper level animals, uh, you know, specifically like uh, animals that tend to function on two feet and uh, animals that tend to have feet to animals that tend to, you know, uh, be mammals, but also uh, I like to look at birds. So you think about these things and you start looking at property rights in other animals. And I've, I often have talked about this, and I'm not going to go into it real deep today because, you know, my regular listeners probably don't need to hear it again. But, but I, you know, I, I watch birds a lot, and I watch squirrels a lot, and I pay attention to other animals as well. And the unique thing that you see is that each species has uh, characteristics, has property rights characteristics that are, that are very specific to their species. And now some of these some of these things overlap between species, but uh, and I use this example all the time. You look at squirrels, and squirrels have no problem at all stealing from each other. Um, but but there's this really hard division of theft between in, in, within the squirrel realm, so that if a squirrel is actually holding, let's say, a nut or a piece of food or whatever, but let's say the squirrel is holding a nut. No other squirrel I have never, ever observed, and this is, I don't know, countless hours of, of watching squirrels, I have never seen one squirrel come up and try to attempt to take the property of another squirrel while it's holding on to it. I've just never observed that, not even once. On the other hand, if the squirrel has an abundance and he takes that nut and he goes and tries to hide it somewhere, squirrels off in every tree around will be watching him. and And if he's smart... If he's if he realizes he's being watched, he'll do several attempts at fake burying of the nut until he eventually buries it uh, for a final time. And other squirrels will then come and check those different spots and try to find where he buried it. Because in their world, there is absolutely nothing wrong with going to the stash of another squirrel and taking that nut. It's not theft to them. It would be theft if they went up and tried to take it away from his hands. That they would consider theft. So they don't do it. This is a behavior that they simply don't do because it's against their nature. So, so we can see an example of property rights that's unique to squirrels when we watch the squirrels. And again, like I always talk about with birds, uh, the, the property rights of a blue jay are really, really different from the property rights of, say, um, say a wren. A blue jay drops down where there's food, picks up food. Once he gets the food in his mouth, it's his. And no other bird had better get near him or try to touch it because it's his. On the other hand, a wren can pick up a piece of food, and it's like a signal for other wrens to jump up there and try to grab it right out of their mouth. And they don't get upset about it because within their limitations of, of, of natural law, to steal out of the mouth of another wren is entirely acceptable. It's not theft. It's part of what, what they need for their species to survive. Well, um, to believe that humans do not have inherent rights, like what I just described with wrens and blue jays and squirrels, to believe that humans are born as these unbelievably complex animals, and we don't have basic understandings of things built into us, I believe is a massive leap of faith 
that has absolutely no foundation. Why would you believe that whales are smart enough that they know how, as soon as they're born, they know how to get to the surface and get to air and breathe and not breathe in water? Why would you believe that whales are that smart at birth? Why would you believe that a butterfly, like I say all the time, can naturally, without a guidance, without a a previous plan, without anyone telling it what to do, can leave the jungles of central Mexico, fly all the way to Canada, and then fly all the way back to the same tree in Mexico? Why would you think that a butterfly can do that and that a human is born without any instincts? So I say that yes... Humans have inherent rights, just like every other species has rights unique to it. So do humans. And the most basic of that, of all those, and perhaps the only right, is the right of property. We own ourselves. We own ourselves, and we own that which it, that, that we have obtained rightfully. And so to reject the basic idea of property is to go against nature. It's to go against that which makes us human. And it it is uh, detrimental to our survival to do that. You can take any species, and you have that species begin to do something that's detrimental to their survival, and eventually you won't have that species any longer. And that's the condition that the humans face today. Unless we realize that the right to property is fundamental to human life, unless we realize that, then human survival has no chance whatsoever. And I think that's really the foundation of the argument between state and anarchism. That is really the foundation to it. And that's the fundamental difference between statists and anarchists is is whether or not that we will uh, maintain our hu- the human race, humanity, whether we will maintain ourselves on this planet by following natural law or if we break away and make a new law for ourselves based on what some humans want and based on what some humans can take from other humans. And I've used this example before with property. All you have to do is uh, go up to the youngest baby, and once they get something in their grip of their little fist, try to take it out of their hand and watch what happens. Every baby understands property rights. Okay, so let me move on now. Um, so left-leaning uh, anarchists believe, like, Kaplan, uh, like uh, Brian Kaplan uh, says, his words were, uh, people, would, uh, people either would or should abandon or greatly reduce the role of property rights. And, and this is how Kaplan is describing left-leaning anarchists. And he says that they either would or should, that's his words, abandon uh, or greatly reduce the role of property rights. So... Um, so let's think a little bit more about property before I move on to the other, uh, the other steps to failure. Whenever ANCAPs hear, um, uh, you know, lefty anarchists talk about, well, you would or you should, this kind of nonsense like this, the, the ANCAP uh, tends to say, really, um, we would or we should, but what if we don't? I mean, that's just a natural, any anarchist. When told that you would or should do something, it doesn't matter what, you know, uh, um, it, it doesn't matter. I think there's a poster, uh, I think there's an internet meme that says something like, um, set your mind free or something like that, and has an anarchist symbol, and some other anarchist puts on there, you're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do or whatever. I mean, that's really the heart of independence, of saying, I, you know, you can't tell me what to do. What if I don't? Who's going to make me? You going to make me? 
You can't tell me what to do. Who, who made you king of the anarchists? So uh, we would or should, that's nonsense. We would or should abandon or greatly reduce the role of private property. Um, who's going to make me? You going to make me? Who made you king? And I'm not saying this to attack Brian. Brian, uh, in his in his thing there, is just explaining the different aspects and the different types of anarchism. So I'm not attacking Brian. He's a very smart individual, although I do think he's a left-leaning anarchist, but not the point. Okay, now step two in, um, in failure to thought here. The social contract. Um, now, this is going to sound a little harsh, but... Once the ANCAPs dispatch those who would seek to take our property for the common good, there will be no one left to enforce a social contract. You see, ANCAPs tend to believe that self-defense extends to all of, our, uh, all of your property, not just your life and your body. Certainly, we believe that your own life and your own body are your own property. But we also believe that your property rights extend out to things that you have gained legitimately. You have not stolen. You have not deceived anybody to take them. You've worked for them. You've developed them. You've homesteaded them, whatever. Uh, you own those things. And if somebody uh, attempts to take them, then we believe that you have the right to defend those just like you would defend your body. So one problem with the social contract is expressed in the following questions. Who defines this social contract of yours? Who agreed to it? Uh, who's going to enforce it? And what, what means are you going to use to enforce it? And now, when you think about these, and, and all I'm going to do is sort of just recap those same questions. Can an unwritten contract with no set definition be valid? Can an involuntary contract be valid? Think about that for a minute. Can an involuntary contract be valid? I could just say one day, you know what, I have a contract f with you where I take your stuff. Would that be valid? Of course not. Well, how is it if 20 people come to you and say, we have a contract with you, uh, it's called, we call it, we're calling it the social contract, and we just decided we're going to take half your stuff. Is that valid? Of course not. Okay, so can an, un can an undefined involuntary contract be enforced without an aggressive government? So these left-leaning anarchists, they want to say, oh, we'd have this perfect society. Where, well, they, that's, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a straw man. They don't really say we'd have a perfect society. But they say that this is going to happen somehow, that we're going uh, to give up these, uh, these imagined property rights that us uh, ANCAPs think that we have. Well, how are you going to do that without an aggressive government? How are you going to enforce this involuntary contract? And can an undefined involuntary contract be enforced while the society remains an anarchist society? I mean, it has to... Who's going to do this? Well, we have some of the lefties that claim to be anarchists, and it turns out that their, uh, their government, their king, their god is going to be a machine, the zeitgeist people are like that. Um, so how can that be anarchist if you have to have some small group of people or some enforcement arm to force it upon everybody else? How do you call that anarchy? Okay, now let's go to step three of uh, Pareto's uh, failures to think. Um, step three would be, oh, the limited pie argument. 
Um, okay, so the economy has set definitions. It's like uh, it's like a pie, where if I take a piece, that means you can't have a piece. And if I have two pieces, then somebody else is going to not be able to have a piece or not be able to have two pieces. And so they look at the economy as being this uh, static thing. Um, I, call, I call this the Michael Moore argument because back in the early parts of the... Um, uh, of the um, Occupy Wall Street movement, he did an interview where he was talking about we need to share the pie. We need to have this guy's got too much of a piece of the pie, and and I made a lot of jokes back then that it would be just like Michael Moore to just focus his mind on pie. But the economy is not like a pie. Socialists like to imagine a world where there is no individual initiative, no in, no imagination, no innovation, and no thoughts of self improvement. And that's why they tend to love the state so much, because the state provides an atmosphere that, that, that suits all those things. Um, if you have faith in this myth of the state, it tends to create a negative attitude, a negative attitude towards individual initiative, imagination, innovation, and, and uh, thoughts of self-improvement. Think of the Puritan roundheads for an example of this. Uh, their parent mo- their they're sort of the parent uh, movement of the modern progressives, or the progressives of the early 1900s at least. Now, so why do authoritarians, and I'm thinking specifically of the Puritan roundheads, why do authoritarians hate your beard and want you to cut your hair? Why is that? Because they see it as, uh, as independence. If you look at, if, this is specifically for men, but, uh, but we could do the same thing with women and how they dress and how they do their hair and everything. But thinking specifically of men, if um, if a man just allows his cranial hair to go to terminal length, then it has a tendency to take on its own characteristics and do its own thing. You can try to manage it, and you can try to style it, and you can try to do whatever you can with it. But longer hair has a tendency to want to do its own thing. The same way with a beard. If you just let your beard grow, it tends to want to do its own thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily want to look like anybody else's beard. Um, a good example of that is uh is my beard and uh and Jim Bovard's beard and when I had him on the show he and I joked around about that a little bit you know, Jim has like the ultimate anarchist beard it's just it's it's telling him this is how I'm going to be today Jim like it or not and uh, and I really appreciate that but that's the thing of it you know about having natural appearances like that um it it really uh sets yourself apart you know, there's no way anybody's going to look at Jim and me and get confused about who is who. Uh, he He's uh, mm, not quite as endowed on the top of his head, on the cranial part. And, uh, and, his, and he's got that really crazy wild beard uh, to go along with it. Um, I, on the other hand, have longer locks and uh, sometimes uh, wildly curly uh, hair that has given me a hard time. Well... Uh, for some reason, and it has to do with this myth of the state, I believe, people who tend to be towards the Puritan or the progressive uh, tendencies, and this can include people on the so-called right as well, because they have those same Puritan tendencies. This is not a, just an attack on left-leaning or whatever. People on the so-called right, the so-called Republicans and on so-called conservatives, almost all the time they are just as Puritan as the leftists are. They're all really in the same bucket. They all want to control your life. They all want to control how you live and how you look. 
So, so they get really, they will get uh, sometimes offended by your hair or your beard. Um, sometimes they will just be discriminative, uh, discriminative against you. Um, but for some reason, they then and now, they wanted uniformity and they couldn't tolerate any deviation from their regiments. And with the Puritans, you could see this especially in their, uh, their uh, 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 new model army that uh, Cromwell set up. They wanted uniform of dress, uniform of speech, uniform of behavior, uniform of faith. They, uh, a lot of people, th- well, it's, it's a lie that's been passed by, by government schools, actually. But a lot of people believe that um, freedom of religion in America came from the Puritans. But that's an absolute lie. The Puritans were the people who would burn anybody who uh, who disagreed with him even on minor points? Um, the freedom of religion in America didn't come about from the Puritans. It came about as a reaction to the Puritans, not the other way around. The Puritans were authoritarian socialists, believing the economy and society had to be planned for their goal of uh, of a of an earthly heaven. Now that that was really the their 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 whole focus. Uh, with time, they abandoned many of the principles and moved toward more fascism and communism uh, as they became more, you know, more and more of the progressives. But their fear and hatred of individualism remains even today. Okay, now, so we're talking about whether or not, uh, whether or not the economy is like, a piece, is like a pie, where it's static and stationary and it can be, it can be divided up and it can be defined and it's, it's a specific thing that we can analyze. And the state, um, the state requires it for, for the myth of the state to work from an economics point of view. Uh, it, it has to think of the economy in that kind of a static way. The state can't centrally plan an elastic, ever-changing economy. For central planning to work, the economy has to be static and definable with specific you know, guidelines. Um, but the problem is the, the economy is never static and it's never definable. Um, the, the economy is based on things like, what do you want today? What do you feel like today? What do you feel like having? Can, can a central planner uh, predict whether you feel like having lobster or chicken today? Can it, can a central planner decide, uh, for you how much you're willing to pay for your chicken dinner? You see, these are all based on things that are, that are all arbitrary within our minds every time we make a purchase. Some days we might think, yeah, you know, I'll pay that amount for a flat screen TV. But then another day you might, given that exact same opportunity, you might not want that flat screen TV for that price. And once you've bought one flat screen TV, the second one may or may not be of the same value to you. So all these things are undefinable and they're all constantly changing with your attitudes and with uh, different circumstances that change. So now for statist uh, economists to get a grip on all this stuff, they have to lie to themselves and pretend that the economy is static, that it's all definable and it's all understandable. But it's not. It's just a delusion that they put upon themselves. And then they sell it, to, they try to sell it to us. So the economy is not like a pie to be divided among state-authorized players. The economy is more like the 127 corridor sale. You know about this, the world's longest yard sale? where you can buy anything from a pair of 18th century Rococo porcelain bookends to a stuffed alligator wearing Ray-Bans and smoking a corncob pipe. 
this is what the market is like. You and you go to a place like this, and you see every kind of every kind of person. You see poor people. You see rich. You see rich people there. You see all of humanity. You see this, and this is what the economy is. This is how markets work. This is not. This is not planable. You can't sit down and say, well. In the world's longest yard sale this week, we need to provide exactly this many Louis the Fourteenth chairs. You can't do that because you don't know what the what the public is going to want. Maybe today they want the Rococo porcelain bookends. Maybe tomorrow you can't sell them at all, and it doesn't matter if you decide that they're valued at a hundred thousand dollars each. If the market doesn't want them for a hundred thousand dollars each, you're stuck with them unless you're willing to take a different price. Now that's the way the market is, and central planners just cannot predict that. If there's a shortage of pie, you know, they, they uh, like uh, Michael Moore, it's like, oh, you took too many pieces of the pie. Well, you know what? In the real economy, if there's a shortage of pie, innovators and entrepreneurs will will provide pie. They'll provide pie, tacos, and a submarine ride in Captain Nemo's Nautilus all around a man-made lagoon in downtown Anaheim. That's what the market does. That's the nature of the market. The market is not a static thing that you can sit down and plan out. But who would build the roads? Folks, where we're going, we don't need roads. Thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.